0: The preaching therein, beginning in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, we'll begin in verse 36 and continue to 51. Verse 36, But concerning that day and an hour, no one knows, not even the angel of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, Blessed is that servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. For truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at the hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's continue to our passage this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no, de- need, no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to abstain salvation, obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whatever we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are doing. Amen. You may be seated.
1: Amen, brother Matthias. Thank you, and uh, not to embarrass you, but we thank you for your all you've done for Avon, for Lorraine County at the JVS, for your right handling of God's word, and your your tireless service to the saints here, brother. We give thanks for you and Beth and your children. So yesterday, I was at a Veterans Day uh, luncheon, and I gathered the group that was putting it on had a list of all their members, both living and deceased. And as I looked through that old roster, I noticed that those who were deceased, they'd have the birth date, the death date, and then underneath it, they had a, a two, two words, in perpetuity. Or "in perpetuity." I thought that's a very interesting line that I think is deliberately ambiguous, because you could say on the one hand, you say, well, this person is dead, and they're, they're in oblivion forever and ever, it's a good word or is it in perpetuity you say is it holding something a little bit back and you're left thinking well maybe they're you know forever and ever in some other happy place and you know maybe there's reunion but in any case i think that culturally that's how a lot of people think about death to say well it's just whatever state we're in it's uh, you know in perpetuity are we left there both last week and this week thanks to god's word that he is infinitely wise has allowed us as we study his word to come to this topic about what happens when we die very much last week about what happens when a christian dies what happens when a christian dies Well, you see, the moment um, a person becomes a Christian, right, God opens our eyes to what he's done in Jesus, to say, I'm plowing through life, the last thing I want to, you know, have anything to do with God. God shows my need, he exposes me, convicts me of my sin and say, you know what, I do need Jesus as my savior, that I'm committed to him, he's my king. When that happens, we're justified in God's courtroom, right, not out of anything that I've done, but about what he's done for me in Jesus as I've been able to surrender him. Now, when we do that, when we become Christians, we receive God's Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of God is alive in us. And so as long as we have on this earth, you know what, uh, Psalm 90, you know, 70 or 80 years, something like that, when our brain activity ceases, which will be the case for everyone in the room. Very sobering idea, isn't it? That the church that we have November of 2022 will not be the same church we have in November 2023 because God will call some of his saints home when our brain activity ceases for Christians, that our spirits, that is the immaterial part of our constitution, right? Christian anthropology, that there's an immaterial part that we would call the soul or the spirit goes to be with Jesus, Lots of places in scripture. Think Paul, Philippians chapter one, right? Better by far to be with Christ. I'd love to be with you more, but if, if today's my day, better by far that if I die, I go to be with Christ. Second Corinthians 5a, better to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. So when a Christian dies, the immaterial part of who they are, and some this year, you've lost a loved one. You say, what, what do we know to have happened the moment that brain activity stopped The spirit went to be with Jesus. That's why in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 14, that those spirits are with Jesus. When he comes again, they're gonna be with him. Then at a time that we don't know, Jesus will come visibly and authoritatively. Nobody's gonna miss it. With the, the, the trumpet call and his voice, and at the voice, one little word from Jesus, the bodies of the Christians will be reunited with their souls, and that body will be patterned on Jesus' resurrected body. So you're here, maybe you're not a Christian, say, what's he going on about? This sounds very fantastic. How does he know this? Did he just pull this out of his back pocket? No, actually, Scripture would give us a rather logical argument if you accept the premise, which is how all logic works, right? It goes something like this. You all know God put Jesus forth into the world that he was fully human, Jesus died, God raised him from the dead bodily, and just as he is resurrected, so will be all those who are in Christ. So Jesus died and was raised, so all those in Christ, you will die, and you too will be raised. So if you accept the premise, which a Christian does, God has acted in the world in Jesus, then this is uh, demonstrated in uh, the passion and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, and as Matthias said, a token of his return to come. So what's our next question then? What's going to happen then to the Christians who are still alive? Well, they'll all be together, those who've died, those who are still here, and the church will be together under King Jesus for the first time in history. A rather good thought. Uh, again, your loved ones passed away maybe a long time ago. Say, does the Bible really talk about a reunion of my loved ones? Well, insofar as they believed in Jesus, yes. Jesus will come again visibly, authoritatively. The dead shall be raised, reunited in a resurrected body patterned on Jesus. Those who are here will be caught up with them and the church will be together under the lordship and kingship of Jesus as he rightly rules with those who are with him in our glorified states. So further question then. Very Thessalonians had the next question in mind. We have the next question in line which I think is this. When's this going to happen? Can we know? I'd rather it happen sooner than later. And that's exactly where Paul takes it up, doesn't he, in chapter 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, when's Jesus going to do it? So two points about the nature of Jesus' return and then an application for our church, okay? Two points and an application. First thing Paul says about this is that the day of Jesus' coming is inevitable. That you can bet on it, to use that word, as much as you can bet about anything in the world say, the day of the Lord, it will come. It's a future promise. Now, so anchored is this in the Christian tradition. Again, don't tradition is not our enemy. It's a good thing. Um, how anchored is Jesus's second coming in the Christian tradition? You think of the Apostles' Creed, which is said by the Western Church, Roman Catholic Church, said by the Eastern Church, the Orthodox Church, Said by all the denominations of evangelicals, all the different movements, you say, this is something that a Christian of every variety would affirm, right? Think of the Creed. Jesus died, he rose, he ascended to the Father, and from there, he's going to come and judge the living and the dead. It's one of the central teachings. You say, well, how does it uh, manage to become a central teaching? Because it's talked about so much in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25. Here, Jesus will come again. It's inevitable. It will happen. You count on it. It's a promise from God. We even get a little picture here, and I have to be careful with this. You'll see why. Check down in verse 3, right? That this day is coming. Sudden destruction will come upon the, the people as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So you see, it's compared to a kind of late-term pregnancy. I think oftentimes we look at this and say, well, is the, is the emphasis on the, the pain? And so I think when this metaphor is used in the Bible, it's not pain, but it's inevitability. Uh, when you're eight, nine months along, that lady, you say there's only one outcome of this, right? <laughs> there's only one direction we're going, I, I think back to the early morning hours of August 29th, 2018, about 3.30 in the morning, there were events in our house that indicated a little one was coming. Now, friends, I make a lot of verbal mistakes. I, 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 I'm a verbal person. I've said wrong things here. I say wrong things to all of you. In my delirium, on August 29th at 3.30 in the morning, there's one thing I knew I couldn't say. Something like, you know, this really isn't a good time for me. Um, Let's delay it a bit. Say, that's what the day of the Lord's going to be, right? That it's going to come. It will happen. And when it's upon us, there's no slowing it down. The inevitability of Christ's coming. Also on this point, if you can look at verse 2, more theologically now. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come. You see that phrase, the day of the Lord? That's a very technical term. It's not as if Paul's, you know, scrambling to say, well, what can I call this? And he comes out with the day of the Lord. I say, this is a very technical phrase. It's got a lot of pedigree. Say, those you've been reading, you know, raised in a, in a Christian home, you've been reading the Bible a long time. You'll say, you'll know from reading the Hebrew Bible that this phrase comes up an awful lot. It's a technical term about God visiting His people. And it's compared here then to the coming of Jesus. And you think of Paul, he says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a top student of the leading tutor, every indication, a man named Gamaliel. He's intimately familiar with what this would have meant in his context. So I'll give you one example from the minor prophet Zephaniah. You don't have to turn there, but something to think about this week. This is Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14. Zephaniah was a preacher in the days of Josiah, 7th century BC. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast. you say that reminds us of last week, and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind. And it goes from there. Say so the day of the Lord is a technical term when God will visit and justly judge all those who've ignored him that the day of the lord nobody makes it out alive so to speak interestingly though i'm just going to flip over one page in zephaniah chapter 3 now in verse 11 on that day again techno on that day the day of the lord you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me, for I'm gonna remove from your midst the proud ones, verse 12, I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly, they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. So what's happening there? So the day of the Lord's gonna come, those who've ignored the true God and their maker said no thanks to God, definitely don't wanna have anything to do with that Jesus, that God will justly judge those who've ignored him. At the same time, those who've come to God on his terms will be those who find refuge in him. So the day of the Lord's a day of great separation. So we don't talk about this very much because this is, you know, in our culture to say nobody likes it, but this is the truth. Say so the day of the Lord's gonna be a day of separation between those who know God and those who've not come to him on Jesus's terms. And you know, this is, I, I think, quite consistent with what we see when, when God does visit his people. Think a few months ago, we were studying Exodus. You remember back to Exodus and what we know as the 10 plagues. You can think of the the 10 plagues as really 10 judgments. What's happening there in Exodus? God visits the people. He passes judgment on the Egyptians who are trying their best to say, we don't want to come to God, you know, even though this is obvious to us. No, their hearts are hardened. You know, Pharaoh's hearts are hardened. And ultimately, say God's enemies are judged. And what happens to God's people? They're brought through the sea Right In a very graphic illustration, they're brought through to the, to the other side of the Red Sea, that they're saved, they're liberated. Say so that's what the day of the Lord is. Jesus comes, those who've come to God will be liberated and freed, and those who don't know him will be judged. Now, this is where I need to be uh, open-handed, so I want you to hear that, say a lot of really solid Christians in our church even have different views about the relationship between chapter four, what we studied last week, Jesus coming again, and this term, the day of the Lord. Some see there being a temporal gap between Christ coming and the dead in Christ rising and being together in the church, and then they would say, either based on one's reading Daniel into this, either three and a half years or seven years later that the day of the Lord comes that they would separate the coming of Jesus and the day of the Lord. Personally, okay, and I again this is something you want to talk about in your small groups, think about it, do a study. I'm glad to exchange uh, thoughts in the years to come. It's not something that we say this is a, a defining of your salvation. Personally, I see no reason here to separate Jesus is coming in the day of the Lord. I think that's one thing. I think Jesus is gonna come definitively and authoritatively, that he's going to judge. Those who are his will be raised and that all those who said no to Jesus, that that will be the start of their judgment in John chapter five, when he comes then the unrighteous will be raised to judgment as well. In this vein, I think when Jesus is talking about the end times in Matthew 24 and 25, something called the Olivet Discourse, that he's talking about the same thing as Paul is talking about 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. So I think it's a definitive uh, event. I think nobody kind of makes it out alive and gets more chances. I think Jesus will come again visibly and authoritatively. The day of the Lord's a technical term where there's a great separation And that's how uh, things will be. That's what's going to happen at the end. Now, also, before we move on, this idea of Jesus' coming is inevitable, that there will be a reckoning. Uh, The the opposite error of trying to somehow push back the day of the Lord, to say, well, let's just wait a little bit longer. Can we have more time? You say you can also commit the opposite error, I think, and that is certain pockets of Christians have uh, thought they could do something to hasten the day of the Lord, to say, okay, everybody, you know, let's get get on the starting line here and let's go all out and do these good things. And as we do these good things, then we can make sure that Jesus comes right on our timetable. In other words, can the day of the Lord be, be sped up? Say again, I don't think so. Uh, God knows when Jesus will come, that this is in the secret counsels of God, that we can't produce the day of the Lord. A lot of times this will come from Matthew 24 and verse 14, where Jesus says, well, my word will be preached in all the world and then the end will come. And you say, some think that means having a Bible translation in every known language of the world, which will happen uh, probably in the lifetime of a lot of people in our children's ministry. So is it about getting the Bible in every known dialect? Is it about an indigenous church planting movement? Is it about having this amount of Christians? Hard to say. In any case, What is clear here is that the day of the Lord will come inevitably, and it will come on God's timing uh, as a late-term pregnancy comes, so Jesus will come again. So Jesus' coming is inevitable. Christians of all circles acknowledge this because it's that clear. Secondly, and somewhat unsatisfying at first, but we'll let it play out, Jesus' coming again will be unpredictable. That is, the precise timing of it cannot be known and look at this image this is likened to what the day of the lord will come like a thief in the night again a different word picture Uh, a few weeks ago now i was i teach in the seminary and i was looking around the classroom and one of my students wasn't there and i said where's so-and-so and And they said well so-and-so had his car hijacked so I didn't know that still happened, you know, where they break down the steering column and, you know, hook the wires together, and the car was gone, and he couldn't get to class. Next week, that student came. You say, how thick and obtuse would it have been of me to say something like this? Why didn't you prevent the thief from taking your car? What would he say? He said, well, I had no idea that that thief was coming. I had no idea. I, I would have done things differently had, you know, I know, and, and that's what we're told here that the day of the Lord, the coming of Jesus, is going to be like a thief in the night, unpredictable, uh, without uh, trying to say a precise time and date. Now that said, as we, it's hard to stay away from 2 Thessalonians 2, which we'll revisit in a few weeks, where it talks about events that need to take place before Jesus is coming again, namely a certain coming of, of a man of lawlessness. The issue with that is that throughout all church history, Christians have tried to identify the man of lawlessness. In the first century, Nero was the man of lawlessness. In the early third century, Septimius Severus, another Roman emperor and a persecutor, they thought he was the Antichrist. In the fourth century, after the empire had become Christian, a man named Julian the Apostate goes back and tries to reintroduce paganism into Rome, and they said, well, Julian must be the Antichrist. In the seventh century, they said, well, surely Muhammad uh, down there you know, in Mecca and Medina, you know, surely he's the Antichrist. You see, you get to the Reformation and the, the confessional standards, well, they all think the Pope is the Antichrist. In the 20th century, we think political strongmen are the Antichrist, you know, surely Hitler or Putin or somebody like that. What's the point? We're not supposed to be wasting our time trying to pinpoint the times and the seasons because when we do that you have some crank saying well Jesus is going to come on this date and then that date doesn't happen it discredits our reading of the Bible which is plain which is the day is not known to any Christian it is unpredictable it will come as a thief in the night and to try to pinpoint the time at which Christ will come again is as insensitive as us asking someone once they're robbed why didn't you prevent the robber from coming So the day of the Lord is inevitable. It's coming, and there's no stopping it. You can't slow it down, you can't speed it up. At the same time, the coming of the Lord is unpredictable, that we're not supposed to be calculating the times and the seasons and identifying the man of lawlessness, rather, and then here we come to our practical application. And that is for us, as a church family, to be on mission and prepared for Jesus to come. And for this last Heading: I drew on Ernest Best's commentary on these letters, and think about what Ernest Best says here. Only the unprepared are surprised by the unexpected. I suppose it's a little bit like, again, go back to a classroom image to say the teacher gives a pop quiz. Say the pop quiz is really bad news if you've not done any work at all. You say, I have no idea what any of these words mean. However, if you've stayed on top of the reading, the pop quiz you're well prepared for it. Even though it was unexpected, you're prepared for it. So you see the difference. Unprepared, only the unprepared are surprised by the unexpected. Who are the unprepared? You see, this passage has a way, again, of of really saying, what do we do with an inevitable yet unpredictable coming of Jesus in this day of reckoning and judgment? Either we're like those who don't think about it, who are saying, and notice how very modern, right? They're crying, peace and security everything's good don't think about god and that jesus that's all that weird stuff life is grand go live it up eat drink and get married do your own thing it's all fine or you say as we are all sitting under god's word together as we do every week we read the passage we work out in a dialogical way what the passage means and we say oh yeah this is a word to the church. And it changes the way we behave. That we are not those who are unprepared, but we ought to be those who are prepared. So you see that this is a very interesting pivot. It's a verse two. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It's unpredictable, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Wait a second here. The day of the Lord's gonna come like a thief in the night, but you're not gonna be surprised by that day coming like a thief. Why? Because we're sitting under the Lord's teaching and we know what He wants of us. So only the unprepared are surprised by the unexpected. This is a pastoral focus then, again, not about times and seasons, but about what it means to be the church while Jesus is um, at work, gathering in the elect. To help us understand further, we get four, four contrasts, verse four to verse seven, if you look with me. "But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. I always think St. Paul never met my English friends, but uh, that's besides the point there. Uh, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate and so forth. Did you catch there's four contrasts there? day night light dark sober drunk awake asleep now before we play this out you're thinking oh man those are those are terrible things to you know nighttime darkness drunkenness sleepiness into which of those categories were we all born which side of those divides am i naturally you say i Naturally, am on the side of darkness. I don't want to come to God. I don't want my life in the light. I want to do my own thing, and I needed help from the outside. That's the true diagnosis. Every time I read Ephesians 5, 8, I always want to insert a word. Because this is where Paul says, you know, you were, you were once darkness." I always want to put the word in. Wait, doesn't he mean I was once in darkness? You know, fair enough. You know, I once was young and now I'm mature, you know, or whatever. I was once in dark. No, that's not what he says. He says, You were once darkness that I once perpetuated the worldview of myself and materialism and personal gratification, that I was on my way to where I deserve, which is the just judgment of God, to incurring the wrath of God. That's where I was until God did what? He came in from the outside. He said, yeah, you open your eyes. Can you see what he's done in Jesus? And like 1 Peter 2, 9, wonderful that God transferred us He brought us over from the dominion of darkness into his kingdom of light, and I hope that's the testimony of every Christian here to say, you know what, I'm looking at these categories. I was once in the eat, drink, and get merry camp doing my own thing until God did a work in my life. He brought me into the light that Jesus himself is the light. The first lines of the Bible are, let there be light. God is of the light and of the day and of alertness. So in these binaries, what's the church to do? Well, I think we're to be alert. I think we're to be on mission, I think we're to be self-controlled, and I think we're to be disciplined. Uh, that's where we're to be, and what better place then to do that than in faith, hope, and love, which is where this ends. Take a look at verse 8, right? That we're to put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. You hear the triad again? The symmetry of the letter back in 1 Thessalonians 1, 1.3, remembering before your God and Father, our God and Father, your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. The same three. What are Christians known for? Well, I'm against that group and against that group, and I'm for this political part. Nope. Faith in Jesus, a sacrificial love, and a hope that endures. Paul says, be on mission. Have your faith really inform your life. Allow it to steer your commitments. Allow it to season your life with forgiveness and grace. Demonstrate a love that sacrifices and how you serve the church and how you serve others. And in all means, in this critical and negative culture, have a kind of hope that abounds because it can't be taken from you because it's in the completed work of Jesus, not in the shifting sands of our circumstances. That's what the church is to do. So we read something like this. Well, Jesus is coming inevitably and unpredictably. Shall I sit idle? Some of the Thessalonians just say, well, I'm gonna sit in the church and pray, so to speak. No. Shall I frantically try to do good works and show everybody what a great person, how charitable I am? No. You're to continue on practicing a faith that motivates a love that labors and a hope that endures. Now, friends, maybe you're here today. You're not a Christian. And you didn't know coming today that we'd be talking about serious things like death that we'll all experience what's going to happen on the other side light and dark and maybe you're seeing this and you're saying you know what i'm in a (laughs) i'm in a dark place it's not going well i i'm scared i'm afraid like that song was talking about is there any is there any hope he said yes there is there's really good news god's acted in jesus and at this very moment as god would have us together thinking about these things that as God would come into your life and open your eyes that you can say yes to Christ you can say you know I see in Jesus something that's offered nowhere else and I am I see in Jesus a light that the world doesn't offer say what you do you say Lord I I need you help me to understand this better but I want to follow Jesus and be right with you and I hope you don't delay on that decision one bit and I, I marvel friends how God brings men and women from darkness to light this week I was reading the Soviet defector Whitaker Chambers. He was again a communist, same-sex attracted, and had his partner or wife gave birth to a daughter, and the baby girl came out. And as he described it, he said, "I just was draw- I was looking at her little her little ear, and." the way the skin was so perfect and how it was constructed and I started to think about the inside of the ear and how she could hear me and at that moment, God, in his kindness, Whitaker Chambers, a least likely convert, said, you know, I think there's something to this God and he started to move. Don't be too proud to become a Christian but follow, right? Follow what God is doing and he calls you, come follow Jesus. He's the only hope we have. So church, what do we do as Christians? Christians, We continue on in faith, hope, and love. We don't go idle, sit in the church, and become holy people. We don't frantically try to do good deeds. Faith, hope, and love. Honor Jesus, humble the sinner. Lift up Jesus, humble the sinner. We decrease, he increases. Promote a lifestyle that honors him, right? Stick to the basics, that's what he's saying. Dignity in everyday work. That's what it means to be a Christ follower. As we then, lastly, you see where this ends, verse 11 that we can encourage one another. Encourage, a great word. You, you put courage into other people. You know, you stiffen the spine that we're to do that for one another. Remember Jesus. We're for him. He's coming again. In this cluttered world, you, you build each other up in that truth. That's what the church is. And so church family, may we do that. And as I close in prayer, I'm going to invite the elders, deacons, and small group leaders forward. And I'm gonna pray about the message. And then we're gonna talk about the Lord's Supper. Father, I praise you and thank you that your people need not be well. You did a work in us so we're no longer darkness, perpetuating uh, the, the view that we're the center of our universes and that we should eat, drink, and get merry and not worry about anything and cry peace and security. So thank you for alerting us to the truth and your moral economy that we all deserve your just judgment for failing to acknowledging you for plundering our fellow man. So thank you for giving us new life in Jesus. And in the same vein, Lord, I thank you for that you would tell us about the future, that we don't need to be afraid of death, that we can face it with courage, that Jesus is coming again. It's inevitable. Help us to not be those preoccupied by the precise timing, but rather to stay on the mission that you have for us, which is to have a faith that motivates our lives, a love that sacrifices, and a hope that endures. So Lord, help this sink in. Help us to understand it better for Christ's sake. Amen.